You are listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these uninspired talks given by Michael McAllister, followed up by question and answer exchanges with groups of his students. In the world of form, or what we might call the real world, we are always coming from a position of lack or we are coming from a position of feeling like we're too much. But even feeling like we come from too much feels like we lack balance. So the job of ego is to make sure that we always are coming from an unfulfilled place. As long as we are coming from an unfulfilled place, the ego has work to do. The ego's job, paradoxically, is to keep us defended from threats. It's to keep us defended from threats. And if there are no threats, then in order to keep its job, it must create some. And this really typifies the normal human condition. We are addicted to that state. In the everyday machinations of life, we always tend to find ourselves, you know, kind of in one way, shape, or form addicted to something. It may be cigarettes. It may be alcohol. It may be another person. It may be shopping. It may be yoga. It may be this sitting practice. <laughs> it may be all sorts of things, but all addictions come from this feeling like I'm incomplete. I am incomplete. I need this. Or if we are unable to face the fact that we need something to feel complete, we might mask it in kind of a politically, at least internally speaking, a politically correct term for us. Uh, it's not that I need it. It's that I want it. Regardless, we tend to come from this position of lack. Ego is totally at home in this space. And it is a contraction. It is a view, or the world view actually from this space is one of deep contraction. And it is also where all conflict comes from. All conflict will come from this place of feeling separate from, at odds with everything else. I am in here. Everything else is out there. That's the birth of war. The distance between the I that we tend to imagine somehow is behind our face somewhere and everything else, the distance there, as Krishnamurti said, is the sum total of human suffering. So, this work is about upending that entire process. And we can do it in a number of different ways. I come at this kind of from a place of first it was all about reading, and then it was all about sitting, and then it was about sitting and reading, and then it was kind of about neither of those things, just trying to embody it. And now I'm kind of back at the sitting and reading place. It's funny how it all kind of uh, shows up in different ways along this path for me. 
I am a big fan of making sure that we take care of our minds along this path as long as we can let go of our intellectual understanding of whatever enlightenment might be or whatever true liberation might be or whatever any of these concepts are as long as we can kind of let go of that and really just take the backward step and study our reactions to everything that arises then we're doing the work then we're actually breaking down the addiction to the separate self-sense. Maybe the most important addiction of all. It's more addictive than heroin or crack, I'm sure. However, I have not been addicted to either yet. Uh, being addicted to ego, that's the way we survive. But people throughout history have been telling us there's another path. And we affectionately call this the middle way. And it's not only specific to Buddhism. Okay? Muhammad talked about uh, not proclaiming your prayer publicly as a way of showing off. He said also it's not okay to hide your prayer from others. Instead, practice this middle way, which, you know, again, I always paraphrase my quotes because I can't remember anything. But this is exactly what Nagarjuna talked about, a Buddhist who said, look, we have this world of form, the everyday world, where we always come from a position of lack, where something's missing, where we are addicted, where I'm in here and everything else is out there, that fundamental delusion. And he said, we have, if we sit long enough, this recognition that there is total emptiness, that there is just vast openness, that there is nothing at all. If we attach to nothing at all, we run massive risks. If nothing matters, that gets dangerous. So, where do we go? I mean, we're either addicted to this world of form or we could potentially become addicted to the emptiness itself. And Nagarjuna, like Muhammad, said, no, it's right in between those two things. It's neither one nor the other, nor both, nor not both. There is a space right in between all the time that we can walk. And that then becomes an embodiment of appropriate response. That becomes an embodied spirit in action. So it's really, I think, important. And oftentimes it's, it's a total mistake in my view for us to look at our work as spiritual practitioners as being somehow that we're cut off from the neck down, that we just deny our bodies, that we deny our feelings, that it's all about just stillness. And if we can just get still, the whole world heals itself. I think this is exactly half right. Because if you don't take that recognition into the world, you really have a difficult time being an agent of authentic positive change. You have to have that realization of emptiness in your work 
to really, really become an authentic agent of positive change. At the same time, if you only take that realization and then rest there, as you all will, you, everybody, every single person on this planet, if they really commit to it, they will awaken. Not in another lifetime. It will only ever happen in the here and now. But once you start settling into the now, it invariably happens. The universe wants to become conscious of itself through your activity. Trust me. I don't talk about faith very much, but I will tell you this. Have faith in that. If it matters, if it matters to you enough, it will unfold. And what is it that unfolds? A recognition that we are nothing, that there is no personhood here, that it's all been constructed by this mind or this ego. I use those terms interchangeably a great deal. By this mind or this ego that feels that it is always coming at life from a position of lack. So it builds all this armor. It creates a mask. It paints it beautifully or it puts really ugly markings on it. Depends how we actually have been conditioned. But that personality is not enough to articulate to the world who you really are. It's just the personality. It doesn't mean it's not, a, you know, that it's bad or anything. It's just not the whole story. Just like emptiness is not the whole story. Form is not the whole story. Emptiness is not the whole story. It's in between when we suture the two together, okay, in a, in a dynamic way that we actually step into our own shimmer. So, again, actively engaging in our, spiritu our spirituality does not mean that we should be inactive, that it's all about just being still, not getting out of bed. That's an attachment. It's not enough to just stay on your cushion, in your chair, in bed. It's not, uh, it's not appropriate to think that resting in the infinite as the infinite means that we can't engage fully in the world because we can. In fact, once we start recognizing emptiness and form suturing themselves together in this life that we're leading, there unfolds this amazing amount of energy to engage in the world. So rather than going away, we actually dive in. But we dive in differently. We don't dive in from a place of the habitual inertia that has always carried us through our life. We go into life with this transplant that has occurred, with not just the world of form governing who we are, but with form as well as emptiness governing who we are. I should also say that uh, actively engaging in our spirituality does not mean that great and intense activity cannot be filled with peace. And that's something 
I think is so important for Westerners to hear. The dynamism of the West meeting the stillness practices of the East is turning both the Western tradition and the Eastern tradition into something new. So having that dynamism is fantastic. It adds sparks to an already beautifully burning fire. But it just means it burns a little brighter, with a little bit more white heat, clear light. Okay? And so it's, I think, again, a partial understanding for people to think that spirituality means that you just bliss out. It's not okay. Not okay mean that's, that's a judgment, of course, but it's not okay meaning it's not full. It's a misunderstanding, I think, to just go one way or the other. Using both of these is the middle way. So, I think it's important that we recognize that the universe gives us exactly what we need in every moment to awaken. It does not give us everything we might want in every given moment. We might not have enough food in the world of form. We might not have enough jewelry in the world of form. We might not have enough love in the world of form. We could be lacking on a number of different areas. We might feel too stressed out, too tense, too beaten, too damaged in the world of form. All of us will have our lack, our sense of lack, or a sense of being too much in the world of form. But what we recognize is that despite the fact that there may be all these diminutions or these pieces that seem to be lacking from this puzzle, the stillness practice that we engage in actually shows us that the puzzle is now and has always been complete. Nothing is missing. We have everything we need right now to awaken into and from and with and as emptiness. In the world of form, until we awaken to that, we will always be lacking something. And therefore, from that position of lack and that position of pain, we will always be addicted to something. So engaging in this world becomes a real interesting exercise. And there's a quote from the Bhagavad Gita when uh, Arjuna recognizes that there's a battle. There's a war that's going to happen. Whether he wants it to or not, it's going to happen. And Krishna says to him, do your duty and remember the Lord. Do your duty and remember the Lord. He doesn't say, do your duty and fight in my name. 
You see the difference? Remember emptiness and then engage with passion and with fire. Don't go to sleep. Don't just melt on your cushion and stay there. Engage. Do your duty and remember the Lord. Fight for what is good. Fight for what's honorable. Fight for what's just. Especially when you recognize that what is good and honorable and just is all about recognizing the other person or what is out there is exactly you. The everything out there, if I'm in here and everything else is out there in the world of form, everything out there is just like me. Its organization might be a little bit different. Its energy patterns might be a little bit different. But if we're really taking stuff down to the fundamental level, it's all a reflection of me. Even the most unconscious person, the most unconscious, I don't use the term evil because I think evil is a label that we give for some person or group of persons, some ego or group of egos that are deeply, deeply contracted. We have that too. And so opening to that recognition allows us to open more fully to those we perceive as being less conscious than we are. This changes the world. That's what ends war. That's what generates peace. That doesn't mean that we don't fight. The minute we're in a situation where the appropriate response is to keep 20,000 people from being gassed in chambers in Bergen-Belsen or in Auschwitz, the minute, the minute we can prevent that and we think that the godly thing to do would be to just not fight, is the minute that our egos hide behind God as a label, not as a reality. If, on the other hand, we fight against that type of violence and we have hate in our heart, we have become the disease that we're trying to fight against. So an appropriate response in this type of a situation when there is deep unconsciousness being foisted upon others or the earth, the environment, whatever, is to meet that with an appropriate response that fuses the world of form with emptiness. That's the work. And this is so far beyond any type of political labeling. This isn't about uh, conservative or liberal. It goes way past that. It goes, it goes way past even our, our conceptual relationship with economics and so forth. How is it that we walk in the world? That's, that's really the big question. Are we doing our duty and remembering the Lord? In other words, letting our duty being infused and informed by spirit, by infinity. If we can do that, 
Ah. Things happen. Instead of seeing the world in black and white, we see it in technicolor. Instead of seeing this is right and this is wrong, we see things as situations that need to be responded to with wisdom and compassion. We can go past the dualisms of this, that, right, wrong, black, white, and from outside of it, we can engage wisely in solving the problem. Sometimes solving the problem is to do absolutely nothing, is to remain totally silent. Sometimes it's to sing. Sometimes it's to fight. But we need to be careful here because it's really easy to turn this whole idea of remembering the Lord into I'm fighting once again in God's name. Or uh, if we are ensconced in emptiness, it's really easy to just kind of say, well, nothing matters. So therefore, you know, we can do whatever we want. But that's not what happens when emptiness is fused with form. When, empty, when emptiness informs form, what happens is form, we begin to recognize ourselves as other. We start seeing that an act against someone else is an act against us. Harming no longer goes out. Harming is omnidirectional. If we are harming ourselves, and this is where it gets most sticky, if we are harming ourselves, we're harming others. So, it's imperative for us when we recognize this non-dual, you know, neither this nor that. When we have this realization, we start recognizing emptiness as form and form as emptiness. When we start seeing everything is just the vibrant display of spirit. when we literally see the whole universe as us, we can look at every single experience, every single person, every single thing, and say quietly, just like me. It's just like me. And this creates a different kind of kinship with the world. Everything becomes do unto others as you would have them do unto you. codified, scripturalized compassion, at least in the Buddhist sense, as written by the Buddhist masters, becomes this weightless anchor for us in the sea of knowing with a capital K. It begins to hold us firm, but we're yet flexible. Only our action that consciously then arises out of this boundlessness that is always there can ever be an appropriate response to what life is dealing us. 
So we begin to settle into this oceanic awareness as this oceanic awareness. We begin to see that there are no problems. There are circumstances that can be dealt with. Some circumstances are incredibly challenging to that part of us that feels like we lack. Once that kind of falls away, once we start mastering a degree of tenderness with ourselves as we meet the world, with others as they meet our sense of the world, then we open. And in that opening, there is nothing less, nothing less than everything just like me. Just like me. Spirit, just like me. You said something about <clears throat> hurting yourself as hurting others. Um, I think of it almost as the reverse of that, hurting others as hurting yourself. How are they different? Well, I guess they're not. They're the same. Yeah. If you perceive others as part of yourself, then right, then it's then hurting yourself is yeah, is, is, yeah, <laughs> it's that's like it. Hurting yourself, it's hurting yourself. Right, exactly. Okay, it's possible, in other words, for each of us to have our own demon that we throw and project a whole bunch of stuff onto. We have our. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of stuff helps us get there. We, for instance, can demonize, uh, let's, I'm picking this out of there, uh, George Bush or, or Saddam or, some, or Osama, let's say, or we can demonize these people and project onto them all sorts of unconsciousness. When in actuality, they are acting in their world from their position, perhaps the same way we would act if we were in their world and their position. Could it be that Hitler thought he was doing the right thing? That Osama thinks he's doing the right thing? That George Bush thinks he's doing the right thing? I Maybe think they all think they're doing exactly. the right thing. Now, if we come from that space that they really believe they're doing the right thing, that suddenly opens up something in us. It's compassion. No matter how much you hate in your heart, or if you don't hate, you just kind of sympathetically look down your nose at somebody or whatever it happens to be. I'm not saying you specifically, but I'm saying in general. The compassion that we can open to in relationship to unconsciousness allows us then to participate in the conflict from and as peace. We bring consciousness in and that's what diffuses the unconsciousness. Every one of us has a part of us that we may or may not like that is absolutely 100% positively sure and confident they can get other people to believe exactly what they do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. And that's, that's, there's a gift there to a degree that each one of those figures that I talked about embodies. It's power. We all have that within us. It oftentimes scares us, and it's not a bad thing, but our relationship to it can get us stuck in places of deep unconsciousness, just like me. 
I can relate to that. <laughs> you talk about that that consciousness. Mm-hmm. Do you always have to be conscious about that consciousness, or does it ever just sort of flow out of you? Both, I think. I think. I think the uh, consciousness, the practice, starts to almost um, drip uncontrollably out of people who've been doing it a great deal of the time. I was speaking with one of my teachers about this very thing, Alzheimer's, kind of creeping into um, an old Zen master that he knew, and he said the practice, it was the most amazing thing, the practice was still you could, he, his eyes still glowed even though he had kind of gone away. So in that sense at least, the impression was that there was something that still came forth. Some of the Shakti was still there, you know, the shimmer was still there. Yet at the same time, you can't stop practicing. Because if you do stop practicing, what is it that starts gaining momentum? The snowball starts rolling. Egos, egos roll down the hill, starts picking up all sorts of detritus along the way. And it, we're back. We're back, meaning the old, the small, the small self can begin to kind of start to manage things again. So the practice mark is for it to continually develop, continually unfold. It doesn't stop. So if the if the small self happens to be occupying you at a certain moment, you can shake that loose consciously, mm-hmm. if you want, or I, if you're aware of it anyway. That's exactly my point about the whole. The universe will give you small self opportunities, so that big self can recognize them. Every day. Brand new, brand new situations. Some old situations that keep kind of cropping up. You know, but yeah, we're given everything we need every single moment to awaken to a big self orientation as opposed to a small self contraction. <laughs>